You may remain standing as we read the Word of God. You may have noticed you have an exceptionally colorful bulletin this morning, and it is because we are having three Sundays now, today, next Sunday, and the following, a series on the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. And that's all in anticipation of Sunday night week on the 24th at 6 o'clock right here in this room. We have our choral concert, Easter choral concert, and it is Felix Mendelssohn's Elijah. So you should be ready. You should have your mind sort of filled with the thoughts of Elijah when you come to hear this presentation by all of our choirs of Elijah. We're going to read the 17th chapter, one of these lengthy narratives, but hopefully it won't be too long as I move through it. But pay attention to as many of the details as you can possibly catch in this story. There are six episodes of the life of Elijah in the book of First Kings in the Old Testament. That's the story we have. We will in these three series look at three, but we'll sort of talk about the other three episodes as well. But this is the introduction. This is all the introduction that Elijah, Elijah gets in the Old Testament, chapter, one, um, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and return eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and, she, and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord. O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so one day Elijah was reading the Holy Scriptures. What Scriptures did Elijah have to read? Well, he had Moses. He had the book of the law. He probably had Joshua and Judges. He might have had an early draft of 1 and 2 Samuel. He probably had the five books of the Psalms of David, probably the book of Proverbs, maybe the book of Job. These were the scriptures. Here's what Elijah represents in scripture. And if you get this picture, it'll help you understand everything we'll say about Elijah. Elijah stands roughly halfway historically between Moses and Christ. Moses, 1500 B.C. Elijah in the 800s B.C. By the way, this is two, three, even four centuries before the earliest Greek philosophers were known to give us anything of wisdom. The Hebrew prophets far preceded the Greek philosophers. And then, of course, Christ comes in the first century. So you have 1,500 years about 700 and something pass, about half of that period of time passes, and you have Elijah the prophet in Israel, and then another uh, 700, 800 years or so pass, and you have the coming of Christ. If you study the life of Christ very much, you'll know how inextricably bound to the ministry of Elijah was Jesus. Jesus was kind of a reappearance in many ways of Elijah. In fact, the prophet Malachi, the last writing prophet, said, when Elijah comes. Now, the spirit of Elijah was upon Jesus' predecessor, John the Baptist. John the Baptist looked like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. People, when they heard him preach, they felt something of the spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah. But it's interesting that when Jesus was on earth, one of the schools of thought was that he was the prophet Elijah. Remember Peter's confession? Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? And Peter answered, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist brought back to life. Some say you're Elijah. And then, of course, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
So the ministry of Jesus was like Elijah's, and we'll see a little bit about Elijah's ministry, and we'll see how Jesus was like that. For one thing, he was a wonder-working prophet. Jesus worked miracles. We're very familiar with the miracle-working, wonder-working ministry of Christ. But Elijah was a miracle-working prophet as well. And it's interesting that the types of miracles they did were very similar. Miracles over nature. Jesus made the winds be still and the waters to calm. Elijah made it stop raining and brought drought upon the earth. Jesus turned water into wine. Here, the miracle of Elijah is that the meal in the canister and the oil in the jug never ran out and lasted a sufficient number of days to sustain the life of Elijah and the widow and her son in her household, it says. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Elijah brought the widow's son back to life. But it wasn't just in the wonder working, it was in the idea of the school of the prophets. You remember in, back in Samuel, back in Samuel 10, we studied about this notion of the school of the prophets. Samuel brought together young men who would learn the trade and learn the business of being a prophet. They would study the scriptures and the spirit of the Lord was upon them and they, they were prophets. Well, that had continued through Israel, but it had waned quite a bit. And Elijah had revived the school of the prophets, and brought that movement back to Israel. Jesus had a school, the school of the apostles. Jesus confronted power in his day. Jesus confronted the Herodian dynasty of Herod and especially the Herodian Sadducees, the Sadducee party in Israel, which were in league with Herod. And Jesus confronted them all the days of his life and it was, it was this group that put Jesus to death because they were the only ones that had the authority to do it. The Pharisees, the people, the mob, nobody else had the right, the authority to put Jesus to death. But the Herodian Sadducees did. Elijah opposed wicked King Ahab. Oh, what a character Ahab has. I wish I could preach a whole sermon on him. I'm not sure he's worth it. My favorite expression was, I was a little boy, I went to hear R.G. Lee, the famous Baptist preacher, and he preached his famous sermon, Payday Someday. And the opening line of that sermon is, I introduce to you Ahab, the vilest toad that ever squatted on the throne of Israel. Now, if that was my first line up here preaching, would I have your attention on daylight savings time morning? But he was the vilest toad that ever squatted on the throne of Israel. Israel had already broken up about 130 years earlier under Rehoboam, the unfit son of Solomon. After all of Solomon's glory, here comes Rehoboam and causes the Israel to rebel under Jeroboam, an absolute uh, illegitimate in every way. Illegitimate in his birth, illegitimate in his lineage, illegitimate in his, in his nationality. He takes the people into rebel and God gives him ten tribes. Only the tribe of Judah and the cluster of Levi's that stayed with Judah 
Only those two tribes survived. The other ten of the twelve tribes went into the northern kingdom and were stayed there until the day of their captivity and never were reunited. And they had one dynasty after another. There was no king like in David, which we'll see in a few weeks. David's throne was established forever. There was no ruling dynasty except Omri, who had, was the general of, a, of a, a man who had usurped the throne for two years, Zimri, and he had been killed, assassinated. And so it was all kinds of treachery and assassination and wickedness in there. And not only that, Jeroboam I had taken the people, when he split them off, he realized that if they went down to Jerusalem to worship, they would stay loyal to, to David in the house of Judah. And so he made for them, Jeroboam did, he made for them worship centers in the north in Dan and in the south in Bethel. And as the dynasties came and went and as all of that nasty things progressed over a one and a third centuries, there came to the throne the son of Omri, Ahab. And Ahab was wicked enough, but in, to multiply his wickedness, he married the worst female human that's ever lived, Jezebel, a Sidonian princess who was a devotee to the worship of the god Baal. Now next Sunday we're going to talk all about Baal and we're going to show you that Baal is nothing different than the modern culture in America. I wish I could get on that right now, but I can't. Save it for next week. It never changes. The whole point of the prophets in the Old Testament is centuries of human history pointing to the reality that there is a God in Israel. A lot of people today say, where's the proof of God? I don't think God gave hundreds of years, and this is the witness, the inscripturated narratives of miracle after miracle, sign after sign, indication after indication, proof after proof that there was a supreme being that governed all of the earth. If I witness to thousands of years and multiple generations of my reality, at some point I would think, I think they've got it by now. The Lord doesn't need to show up and prove to you that He's God. He has proven over the centuries by miracle and wonder to countless prophets and people and kings that He is. He exists. And He is who He is. And if you don't believe the witness, then you won't believe someone that rises from the dead to tell you about God. That's what Jesus told the rich man and Lazarus. He said, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe someone that rises from the dead. And the greatest proof of the living God is the living Christ. That's what you have over and over and over here is these, these stories of these incidences and these episodes and these crises and God manifested Himself and delivering and, and working within the ordinary affairs of man to bring about extraordinary signs and wonders. That's what it's all about. And there's this connection between Elijah, the wonder-working prophet, and Christ, the Son. But here's the main connection. They're both a continuation of Moses. I was struck. Look at that picture. <laughs> when I walked in this morning, looked up there, that's Moses holding his hand out over the Red Sea. You know, on the other hand, which you can't, you can't see, it's probably got the rod in it. That's Moses. No, that's Elijah. <laughs> that's the depiction of Elijah. There wasn't a lot of difference because they both were wonder workers. They were both God's people. They were 
One was the law giver, Moses, and the other, Elijah, was the law enforcer. He was the one that came to drive home the law of God. One of the horrible things that Jeroboam I did and that Rehoboam did was they took away all of Israel's mediation. Many times in this pulpit I've emphasized the absolute importance of mediatorial work. Somebody to stand in the middle. That's what Christ is. He's our mediator between God and man. Is Christ and He mediates His prophet. He mediates His priest. He mediates His king. But in taking the kingship away from Judah and, and splitting it off into the northern kingdom, Jeroboam I and later Ahab severed God's people from the mediators. They didn't have the temple. It was in Jerusalem. They didn't have the priesthood. It served in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem for the most part. There were a few scattered priests around, but not very many. They had cut off the worship of the people, the priest and the temple. The only thing the northern kingdom had its entire existence the only mediation they had, the only conduit to God's will and God's word, the only reminder that there's a God in Israel came from the prophets. And there were few of those. The school of the prophets, Elijah, then Elisha, and then working its way down, the last of the, writing, of the prophets that became the writing prophets to the northern kingdom were Amos and Hosea. All the other prophets prophesied to the southern kingdom, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and, uh, and uh, Zephaniah and all the rest of them. And then the latter prophets did what they needed to do in the, in the book of the Twelve to the group of people that came back from Babylonian captivity. The, the northern kingdom was bereft of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of prophecy, orthodox worship. That was bad enough. To be in a, in a, there was a famine of godliness in the land a long time before there was a famine that came from the drought. But they had imported the false religion, which I said we'll talk a little bit more about next week. Horrible, horrible substitute for the true religion. So, to build up a little bit of introduction, let me just make a couple of comments. I said, Elijah who was a lot like Moses and was a disciple of Moses, was reading the Scriptures one day. He's living in the land. He's watching what old King Ahab is doing. He's seeing how the people are living. He's witnessing the abominations one after another. He's living, to some extent, in a wary fear of Queen Jezebel, who's vowed to kill all the prophets of Israel that she possibly can, get, can kill. He's reading, he's reading Deuteronomy 11 more than likely because listen to it. If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for you in your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And He will give grass to your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. 
Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. That's Moses. Elijah reads it. He sees what it is. And if there ever was a man fervent in prayer, James tells us in the end of his little epistle in the New Testament, he prayed fervently. And there was no rain. The reason there was no rain is the prophet of God knew that God's people had to be brought to their knees again. And he needed divine intervention. And he prayed, Elijah did, that it would not rain. And it did not rain for the space of three years. That's why the drought came. Elijah, the prophet, said to the Lord God, do what you will with this rebellious and sinful and godless people. Bring your judgment. You promised it. You warned about it. You threatened it. Now bring it. It's interesting that while God brings the drought so that there is, as he says here, no oil and no grain, the miracle was in the life of the widow that the Lord kept the oil going and he kept the grain, the meal, the flour in the jar. In other words, God brought judgment upon the land, but he did not bring judgment upon the people that he spared. And Jesus used this as an example. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, which is there in your text, and we didn't, we didn't read it because it, uh, uh, I wanted to bring it out at this point. Jesus has been reading in the synagogue in Nazareth, and the scripture said, Truly I say unto you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. By the way, the word Elijah is two words, you can see them. Eli or Eli, which means my God. It's the possessive form of the word El, God. And then Yah or Yahweh, or what we call in the English Jehovah. And it is whose God is the Lord, whose God is Yahweh. That's what this very name means. And so this particular prophet, it, it was said that he was a Tishbite. And a Tishbite is not the name of any particular place. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a status. He was a, a sojourner. He was a settler in the land of Gilead, which is the land on the east side of the Jordan River. So Elijah was, was a pilgrim in the land. He was brought in there by God and brought over into the northern kingdom to preach to them, much like Jonah was taken to Nineveh. And Jesus now is, is adopting that same view of international prophecy, that the gospel goes to the whole world regardless of the nationality. It moves beyond the bounds of Israel. And so Jesus said a prophet is acceptable in his own hometown, but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up there. Three years and six months that a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows of Israel, but came to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, which is Tyre and Sidon. This is a village between those two major cities in, in what back then was Phoenicia, today the modern state of Lebanon, as a woman who was a widow, and there the Lord ministered. It's interesting that when the Lord read the Scriptures, 
Here was their reaction. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. There's a sweetness to Jesus reading the word of God. I loved it. It soothed the hearts. It was priestly. It was comforting. It was Bible reading for their soul. But then when he started talking about Elijah's ministry and God's taking the gospel to whom he will, God's saving through the famine those whom he will, notice the reaction to that sermon. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and down and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. When the man of God is reading the scriptures and the scriptures are promise and hope and salvation and covenant and mercy and sweetness, the people are comforted. When the priest preach and teach peace, peace, the people are calmed. They love it. A lot of people love the Word of God. They love to hear it read. They love to hear it taught and preached. But when the preacher started making application, when the preacher started preaching, it was a whole different reaction. And we see that in our churches. As long as we're reading all the wonderful scriptures, we have people amen and nodding their head and being greatly comforted. The Word of God is powerful to do that to you. But there's also the other side of the two-edged sword, and that is the prophecy of judgment. And that's really what the whole point of this particular passage is. It has to do with the curse. The curse is the famine. And the curse is upon the whole people. It's the curse of death. It'll take them all the way to hell. But then there is the blessing. Life is sustained. The Lord sustained Elijah's life by the brook with the ravens who fed him. Then he moved him over and he was sustained by the oil that would never run out and the meal that never ran out. The gospel has life in it. In fact, all the symbols of life are here. The flour, the meal, the bread of life. The water of life. Bring me to drink, said Elijah. And the oil the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, the regeneration, the bringing from death to life. And we have in the picture, in the story, not just the sustaining of life, but the restoring of life. Bringing back to life with the case of the Son. Elijah prayed again. Next week we look at the prophets of Baal and later we'll see that that's what got Elijah by. Powerful prophet, Bible scholar, hard-nosed preacher, great teacher, powerful man, the highest peak of God's word from the days of Moses to the days of Christ. But it was prayer. Prayer drove him to his knees 
And the Bible says there that God, catch that little phrase, but I told you to pay attention to the details. God listened to him. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Do we have this kind of power in our lives? Through prayer, do we have this kind of power in our lives with faith in God? Do we believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him? Do we seek the Lord while He may be found? Do we call upon Him while He is near? And do we have the power in our lives to sustain us But more importantly, do you have the power in your life to raise you from the dead? Spiritually in regeneration. Physically in bodily resurrection. Jesus' whole ministry, I am come that they may have life. He that hath the Son hath life. This is life eternal that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus the Christ whom You have sent. Those were the prayers of Christ, that You would come to know Him and come to be His, and You would have this bestowal of eternal life. God so loved the world that He gave His Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish the curse of death, the famine, the drought without the water of life, but have everlasting life. In fact, there'd be within you a well, a spring, springing up, a well of water springing up to everlasting life.